Good morning. This is our third week into a message series called Feed Your Soul, where we're looking at how the Bible uses the imagery of food to describe uh, how to have a deeper, more effective, more fulfilling relationship with God, a relationship where you're growing closer to Christ and you sense Christ is working in and through you in more meaningful ways for God's good purposes. A relationship where faith is more than just you know, wishful thinking or a, a system of ethics of do's and don'ts, but where your relationship with Christ actually becomes your core identity, becomes the center of your very self, and then the rest of life kind of flows out of that divine center. Our scriptural focus for this morning is from the New Testament book of 1 Peter. We're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. The Apostle Paul is writing to first century Christians who have been scattered throughout the ancient Roman Empire by brutal persecution, much like today's Christians in Iraq who've had to flee the country because of the savage attacks of the Islamic terrorist group ISIS. These ancient believers were in danger and they were discouraged and confused. And so in this letter, Peter's trying to anchor their faith in the hope of Christ. And he's calling them back to the basics of faith, reminding them of the importance of living for Christ even when things are not going well and life is difficult. Throughout the letter, he gives these little word pictures of what a healthy faith looks like, as he does in the short section we're going to be reading this morning. So let's open our ears and hear God's word today. 1 Peter chapter 2. It says, Therefore rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Did you hear his word picture? Let me read it again. It says, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. Amen. This is the word of God. In a few weeks, I'll be going on a mission trip with a team of folks from the church to visit the children at the Amistad Orphanage in Cochabamba, Bolivia, one of our long-standing mission partners. And our special Christmas offering was, was dedicated to Amistad, and I am so happy to pass on to them that uh, between our Sunday offerings and the online Gifts of Hope, we've raised just over $50,000 for their ministry. I'm so proud of all of you who participated in that offering. You are making a real difference in the lives of those children, and we get the privilege of seeing it firsthand. You know, it's hard for us to understand the kind of extreme poverty that would lead parents to simply abandon their children on the streets. But it is a huge problem in many South American countries, especially in Bolivia. The state-run orphanages are very institutional, and, and children are housed in dormitory style, split up by gender and age, and so children are normally separated from their biological brothers and sisters. And one of the unique things about the Amistad ministry is that it's based on a family model, where the children live in individual homes, which then allows siblings to remain together. In the fall, Amistad welcomed a new batch of five children, all from the same family. First two boys came, and then right before Christmas, their three sisters arrived. And you can see the girls in the photo on the screen. Maria Luz, Cynthia, and Lourdes. Aren't they, aren't they beautiful children? Well, they didn't always look like that. Seeing that photo, it's hard to believe the kind of neglect and abuse that they'd suffered. And when children first arrive at Amistad, one of the things the staff has to do is an assessment of the child's physical health. Because most of the, 
uh, abandoned children are, are malnourished or undernourished. The diet they had in their home was not good, often very starchy, and maybe only one or two meals a day. So the staff has to assess where they are food-wise. And there's a question that's used to describe a child's general health and well-being. The question is, are they thriving? Are they thriving? From a dietary and health perspective, are they thriving when it comes to food and biological growth? It's fairly easy to measure if someone is thriving or not because you can monitor their, their height and their weight. You can see it in their skin tone. You can kind of see the, the clarity and the brightness of their eyes. You can measure if someone is thriving physically, but how do you measure if someone is thriving spiritually? How do you know if someone is thriving in their relationship with God? And since we're talking about feeding your soul, well, what yardstick would you use to measure spiritual growth? Because there's a lot of talk in church circles today about the need for spiritual formation and deeper discipleship, and for good reason, because over the decades, much of American Christianity has been pretty anemic and, and kind of watered down. A lot of Christians don't seem to evidence a very deep or meaningful faith. There's a real discipleship deficit. And even though that's the main purpose of the church, you know, to go and make disciples, followers, imitators of Christ, overall, we don't seem to be doing a very good job at it. But we're not alone in the struggle. From the very beginning, we see in the New Testament that followers of Christ would frequently kind of plateau, flatten out. Their faith would reach a certain low level and kind of just get stuck there. And the Apostle Paul had to deal with this in his letters to the Christians in Corinth. They were awash with all kinds of problems from internal bickering to doctrinal disputes to sexual misconduct. The whole church seemed to be stuck in spiritual immaturity, so much so that when he wrote to them, he sounds somewhat frustrated in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He writes, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, as people who are, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, you are still worldly. For since there's jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? You see, they were not thriving. They were content, content to remain spiritual babies still in diapers. The writer of the book of Hebrews expressed the same kind of frustration with his audience in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. He writes, By this time you ought to be teachers, but you still need to, someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk being still an infant is not acquainted with the teachings about righteousness, but solid food is for the mature, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. They weren't thriving either, not from a spiritual growth point of view. They were still infants in the faith, not in terms of time, but in terms of real growth. And so in our passage for today, the Apostle Paul lays out the same kind of truth, that even though the, the, there's a discipleship deficit, that that's not, that doesn't change the goal. God wants us to grow up, grow up to become spiritually mature. God wants his church to put people on the path to spiritual growth. And we've been describing that process as feeding your soul. God wants his church, his people, to follow a healthy diet 
so that they can thrive. These three verses from 1 Peter actually summarize what we've looked at over the last two weeks. Because first of all, there has to be a hunger, a desire. Peter says, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual meat. Crave it. The first thing that there has to be is a desire to grow, a yearning. So you want it so much you can taste it. And so we have to ask, do you feel that way about Christ? Because if the desire isn't there, there is no second step. If the desire isn't there to grow, then you are really stuck. You know, if a newborn baby doesn't have a desire to feed, that's a very dangerous situation. Healthy babies instinctively want that milk, and they'll usually let you know it, usually numerous times in the middle of the night. A healthy baby is not shy about letting the parents know that somebody's hungry. So having a desire for spiritual growth has got to be the first thing. But the desire by itself isn't enough. Peter says to crave pure spiritual milk, and by that he means the word of Christ. Pure spiritual milk, not watered down or adulterated, but full strength, full strength. That's why we're so committed to Scripture as God's word written. Because if you've got an anemic view of Scripture, a watered-down view of God's Word, how can you possibly hope to grow and thrive as a disciple? You can't do it apart from the Bible. And a diluted view of the Bible, it isn't of any help to anyone. It's like putting water in your car's gas tank and expecting it to run smoothly. No way. In pointing out this danger, Peter is referring to the false teachers who were always kind of lurking around the edges of the church like wolves, circling a herd. They were looking for people, weak in their faith, who could be deceived and led into various ancient cults and sects. And that's one way to spot a group that's distorting the Christian faith, is just look at how they treat or value or uphold the Bible as the Word of God. Because when the Bible is diminished or whitewashed or is secondary to some other book, you know, like the Book of Mormon... That should tell you something. You need the word of God, full strength, high octane, pure. But Peter tells us that just having a desire, a craving for the word of God, that isn't the goal. That's what gets you closer to the goal. The goal is spiritual maturity. He writes, like newborn babies crave spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. The so that tells us that the end result is supposed to be that we grow up in our salvation now that we've tasted that the Lord is good. Now that we've begun our faith, now that we've had this taste of Christ, we should be eager for the full meal. Spiritual maturity, that's the direction we are all supposed to be headed. No longer infants, Paul says. Not even spiritual adolescence, but maturing into adulthood as believers. Thriving. This idea of spiritual maturity, it feels kind of elusive. I mean, how do you know if you've reached the goal? I mean, is it even possible to become, you know, fully mature in Christ? I don't think I know anybody who would claim to have finally reached that goal, who has become fully mature as a Christian. You'd have to have a pretty big ego to claim that for yourself. It seems like really the opposite happens. The closer a person gets to God, the more that person recognizes how far away they really are. The closer you get to God, the more you're aware of his holiness and your own sinfulness. That's why as a mature believer, you can actually feel further away from God than you did when you were a brand new Christian. How's that for a paradox? You are more aware of his holiness 
and your sinfulness. And so your growth towards maturity in Christ actually reveals how far you have to go. So spiritual maturity really is a journey and not a destination. We are on a path towards God. We've got a long way to go. Like the character named Christian in John Bunyan's classic analogy, Pilgrim's Progress, the path to spiritual maturity has many twists and turns and detours and diversions. It's not easy. There are pitfalls and plenty of people trying to discourage us. And yet also, we find great people who cheer us on like the crowds at a marathon. There are experiences that fulfill us. There are rest stops that refresh us. And best of all, we discover that Christ walks the path with us and provides what we need when we need it. In trying to measure spiritual maturity, in trying to define what a thriving faith looks like, we have one advantage over the first century believers who were on the receiving end of Peter's admonishment. We have 2,000 years of Christian experience to draw upon. We are not the first people to struggle with what it means to move along the path towards spiritual maturity. Others have gone before us to blaze the trail, and they've written down what they learned. Lots of believers across the centuries who kind of broke out their machetes and hacked their way through the undergrowth, who have cleared a trail for us and have left us good markers. If you've ever hiked on a serious mountain trail, you know how reassuring it is to see that, see that trail marker attached to a tree or on a rock. The marker confirms that you're on the right track. And that's true in defining what it means to spiritually thrive. There are markers we can look for, general characteristics that others before us have pointed to as a way of measuring spiritual growth, if we're willing to learn from them. Here are the three markers on the path towards spiritual maturity. Knowing, being, and doing. Knowing, being, and doing. Let's talk about knowing for just a bit. In Colossians 1 verse 9, the Apostle Paul prays that Christians would be filled with the knowledge of God, filled with wisdom and spiritual understanding. Increasing your knowledge about your faith is an essential factor in spiritual growth. That means primarily learning the Bible. As I preached about last week, the Bible is God's primary tool in shaping your faith. So the more that you are in the Bible, the more comfortable you feel in using the Bible, the more you understand how to study it, how to apply it to your life, the more you grasp its message, the more likely it is that you will increase in knowing your faith and Christ himself. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. It's God's word that's going to help us move down the path of spiritual growth. If you're not in the word of God in some regular way, your faith will not thrive. But the goal is not to become some walking encyclopedia of Bible trivia. The goal is not just to be able to you know, regurgitate uh, chapters and verses or wow people with how fast you can name all the books of the Bible backwards. You know, the goal of knowing your faith is a deeper relationship with Christ himself. And sometimes it's possible for people to substitute Bible knowledge for a real encounter with Christ. I mean, you can have Christian leaders, preachers, pastors who can impress you with their knowledge about the Bible and yet not have a sincere relationship with Christ. Lots of frauds and charlatans out there, unfortunately. And I would also have to say, in my experience, there are a lot of college and seminary professors 
who teach the Bible or theology or religion who have no relationship with Christ at all. I mean, I had a New Testament professor like that in college. He was brilliant, knew the Bible better than I ever will, but he didn't believe it. Didn't have any faith in Christ at all. And for the life of me, I could never figure out why he went into that field of study when he had no skin in the game, so to speak. Seems like such a waste of time. And remember, Satan knows the Bible backwards and forwards, as we saw last week in the story of Jesus' temptation from Matthew 4. Satan could quote scripture. So Bible knowledge is not an end in itself. Learning facts about the Bible doesn't make you a Christian and doesn't automatically move you closer to Christ. But you will not thrive as a Christian without growing in your knowledge and application of scripture to your life. Knowing. Then there's being. And that's the second marker of spiritual maturity. We learn so that we can be. In Romans 12, 2, Paul says that we are to be transformed by this renewing of our minds. There's a mysterious transfer that happens when knowledge begins to seep into your mind and heart. As we walk the path toward Christ, we are to become more and more like him. That means that there should be changes taking place in any number of areas in our lives. In Matthew 7, verse 17, Jesus says, a good tree produces good fruit. Faith in Christ should produce some recognizable effects in who you are, things that are visible to others. In Galatians 5, the Apostle Paul calls these qualities the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are all emotional qualities or, or ways in which we relate to others or to situations in our lives. And so it seems to me that Paul is indicating that that emotional maturity is an indicator of spiritual maturity. They're kind of tied together. There's a connection. Producing this kind of fruit is about evidencing or, or exhibiting the presence of Jesus in your emotional life. Often people confuse emotional experiences with the presence of the Holy Spirit. That faith gets wrapped around a, a person's feelings so that people start craving emotional experiences. They begin to think that if they don't feel excited then the Holy Spirit is absent. But that's not a scriptural view of emotional maturity. Being has more to do with how we live and the way that we treat people, how we handle our emotions in stressful circumstances. Someone once said that spiritual maturity isn't about how high you can jump in praise, but how straight you can walk in obedience. Spiritual maturity asks, do you look like this? Do, you, do people see this in you? Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, self-control. Do people see that in you? You know, we've all got a long way to go on that path, don't we? And then finally, there's doing. Actions flow from knowing and being. You see, no one wanders into spiritual maturity. There are no accidental disciples. There are things that we do that support spiritual growth. These things are called spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices, things that we actually do to promote spiritual growth and help us thrive. And as a church, we've identified six spiritual pathways, six spiritual practices that we think help people uh, have their faith to thrive. We've preached on these disciplines numerous times in the past, so I won't spend much time on them now. Let me just list them for you. We say people should pray daily, worship regularly, Study the Bible faithfully, give generously, serve joyfully, and love continually. Pray daily because prayer is the primary work of the people of God. Worship regularly because when Christ is 
at the center, worship will really change your life. Study the Bible faithfully because knowing and obeying God's word are the keys to true success. Give generously because we recognize that everything we have belongs to God and we're only his stewards. Serve joyfully because you're called to share your faith and share your abilities. Because every believer has a ministry serving Jesus Christ. And love continually because love one another was Jesus' command to pursue deep community. Those are six spiritual pathways or practices that promote spiritual maturity. Six things that we can actually do to help our faith thrive. Folks, I'd really encourage you to pray over Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 2. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that you may grow up in your salvation. There's a lot to chew on in that one little verse. I hope that a hunger for Christ will grow in each one of our hearts. A hunger that leads us to a greater knowing of God's word, a deeper being where Christ continues to transform our emotions, and a more purposeful doing where we put into practice the spiritual disciplines that guide us along the pathway to spiritual maturity. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, there's a lot in that one little verse. and I've probably tried to cram too much into this one message. But Lord, may you encourage that hunger in our hearts. May you lead that to deeper knowledge and a greater obedience to you. Help us to put into practice these spiritual disciplines so that we can measure and see real spiritual growth taking place in our hearts. We thank you today in Christ's name. Amen.